Ladies and gentlemen, how's yep. it going? Um, this is uh, another episode of DFV, and I'm your co-host, Black Cinephile. And I'm your co-host, Brad. That right there is your co-host, Brad. And uh, we got one here that, you know, me, myself, I've been looking forward to uh, for a while here. Because I feel like this is like, uh, these are just two great movies uh, from the imagination of Paul Schrader. That, uh, you know, it, it it's these... Um, they both film surrounding men that um, have a slow descent into madness. Well, one film is more so madness. The other film is more so obsession. And uh, they lead to like a very explosive climax that if this is your first time seeing th- these films, you, you you very much likely don't see coming. You know it's leading up to something big, but you don't see where it's going until it gets there. Uh, yeah, this, I'm excited for this one. On this one, we got a uh, Taxi Driver. Directed by Martin Scorsese versus First Reform, directed by Paul Schrader, uh, both written by Paul Schrader. And uh, Brad, how are you feeling about this one? Uh, so when you first pitched this topic for an idea for an episode, you went. So I'm thinking Taxi Driver. And I was like, yeah, OK, I, I will always take a reason to watch Taxi Driver again. And, <laughs> you know, the, the second movie was just kind of added into there. It didn't matter what it was. I was all in already. <laughs> Yeah, I could have said, let's just do Taxi Driver versus Jiu-Jitsu again. Yeah. yeah all right, fine. Okay, yeah. What, would Taxi Driver <laughs> against uh, My Little Pony Friendship is Magic? Yeah, that sounds like a great match. Let's do it, man. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been funny if we did that. But, uh, yeah, it, uh, it comes down to, obviously, we have two movies written by Paul Schrader, one of which mm-hmm. is directed by him, and... As a result, they both have a very similar feel to them. And yep. I, I noticed in HBO Max, which is where I watched uh, First Reformed, it, the literal description of it starts off from the writer of Taxi Driver comes a brand new movie. <laughs> and it like is uh, two sentences in before it actually gets to a plot synopsis for this movie. <laughs> well, which is crazy because... You know, there's so many other films he, he's written with um, Scorsese and directed on his own as well. Mm-hmm. You know, there's Raging Bull, which is a pretty classic, too, that he uh, he wrote um, for uh, Martin Scorsese, where he directed. And, you know, he also, um, Schrader also directed, like, American Gigolo, Hardcore, Affliction. A lot of, you know, popular independent films, but everything just always goes back to Taxi Driver because it's just the granddaddy of, like... You know, like the most iconic film in his, um, I want to say, either writing filmography or uh, filmography in general. Yeah, but at the same time, it's hard to argue when it comes up to like, well, what's the uh, Paul Schrader movie that you know the most? Uh, yeah, it's Taxi Driver. It's it's always Taxi Driver. It always will be Taxi Driver. <laughs> mm, mm. I'd say for a long time, it, it was a toggle between Taxi Driver and Raging Bull, because I, I think I saw both of those films around the same time. Okay. Yeah. But I, I'm excited for this, man. Uh, I think this is going to be a, a fun one. And uh, I, I'm looking forward to dissecting these two films. And listen, um, I, I just feel like because this is like when like one of his first like iconic projects, I feel like we should go with Taxi Driver first and then get into First Reformed. Because I feel like, you know, just because First Reformers looked as kind of like a return to form for him. How, how do you feel about that? Um. Yeah, I'm not going to argue with uh, starting with Taxi Driver first. I don't think there's any way that I could argue against starting with Taxi Driver first. Mm. 
Okay, gotcha. Oh, I wasn't expecting that, folks. I thought he was going to fight me. <laughs> uh, but all right, we're going to do Taxi Driver first. All right, so 1976, Taxi Driver, um, directed by Martin Scorsese, written by Paul Schrader. We got the uh, legendary Robert De Niro in the le- in the lead role of Travis Bickle, you know, joined by a very young, terrific jo- Jodie Foster. We got Sybil Shepherd, Harvey Keitel, Albert Brooks, Peter Boyle, Leonard Harris, you know, so in this film here, this um, follows a man, Travis Bickle, a Vietnam War veteran who is now um, a, a taxi driver in a very dark, uh, gloomy New York City. And Travis Bickle has a very deteriorating mental state. You know, he he has insomnia. He's having like, you know, dark thoughts bubble up. It's only until... Um, and, and, you know, this is a very gradual uh, descent to madness, which is what I love about the writing of this film. It, it's only until he meets um, a woman named Betsy. And then um, later on in the film, he meets a young girl named Iris, who is a, um, you know, um, a lady of the night who he's trying to rescue in his mind to be a, you know, a hero. Um, his his mental state starts to deteriorate even more where he starts to look at a... Um, a, a politician that's running as a um, you know a, uh, an enemy that he needs to take out, and it's 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 at this point in the film where you're like this guy has some dark thoughts and you don't know what he's gonna do, and you're just along for the ride to see how far down the rabbit hole Travis Bickle is gonna go before he actually hurts somebody, and that is the bare bones of Taxi Driver. Yeah, and man, it, if there's anybody that's listening to this that hasn't seen this movie. It, oh, you man. you need to go and watch it if especially because there's so many movies that take homage to taxi driver that mm-hmm. if you haven't seen it there's a good chance that you'll be watching and going oh hey it's like that scene from this movie or this scene from that movie and like the entirety of like joker is basically a play-by-play of the same kind of storyline as taxi driver with just well, certain different aspects to it. Well, I like to say, you know, uh, Joker is more half half taxi driver, half the king of comedy. Right. Yeah. Uh, two Scorsese movies. But yeah, I got you. Uh, listen, man, I, there's a handful of films that everyone in their life should see if they uh, if they're serious about not even serious about cinema, but just want to watch a great cinema. Uh, taxi driver is for sure one of them, you know, up there with, you know, do the right thing, the Godfather um, even though I'm not a big fan, I'll throw Gone with the Wind in there, at least just to see it once. Lawrence of Arabia. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. one of the greatest pieces of cinema uh, ever created. Yeah. And I mean, a big part of it comes down to Robert De Niro's portrayal of Travis and oh, his just slow descent because he comes off at the very beginning as just a normal taxi driver that, mm-hmm. you know, he's a little bit over kind of eccentric about his job being a taxi driver but a lot of it Mm -hmm. comes down to the fact that he's a retired war vet who is just trying to find that next way to be a hero and he's just a taxi driver he does it at night he loves the streets you know watching like all the crime that happens oddly enough as he's like yeah it doesn't bother me it's just kind of the city Mm -hmm. isn't it nice it's like, yeah, that's not a normal thing to say, but okay, keep going. (laughs) 
in, in his, his interior monologue is so, and I love how it changes throughout the film too. That's mm-hmm. what I love about the writing. I love how it starts off so dry and so matter of factly, like, yeah, you know, after the first ship, I had I had to, you know, uh, you know, wipe the cum off the seat. It's another day, you know. Like <laughs> I was like, that's not normal. <laughs> like right. you see him washing up the seat. Um, and he's like, uh, I I got I grabbed some more four rhythms to put on my refrigerator uh this morning. Uh, what, what what did he say? Uh, you're only as healthy as you feel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it starts off like a dark comedy, pretty much. This dude goes to like, you know, um, you know, theaters where they're showing adult movies and he's not going there to get a thrill or nothing. He's just so lonely and he doesn't know where to go at night that he just goes to these theaters, watches these movies and just treats it as if it's just a regular thing on his day. Like he's watching the last Survivor episode. Right. Uh, like, you know. Like this guy is so lonely, and um, I, I like how you know again how things kind of gradually build up. At one point, the woman he's been uh you know constantly watching, that is a uh um one of the many uh, uh a person campaigning for uh Charles Palantine, who is um you know um he's a senator and he's 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 uh he's running for president, I believe, right? Yes. Yeah, he's running for president, presidential candidate Charles Palantine. She works on the campaign with Albert Brooks's character, um, you know, Tom. So finally, he walks up to Betsy. And, um, you know, if you don't, if you wouldn't know this guy up until this part in the movie, you go, this guy has a lot of guts. He has a lot of charisma. But something's off. Like, even if you don't know Travis Bickle up to this point, something's off with him. Yeah, he's a very sly talker. Like, he literally comes up to her and is like, hey, you know... That guy over there, do you like him? I can tell from your like body language that you don't like him, but there's something between us. And uh, but that that's... was, yeah, that was after. That was the coffee date. Oh, that's about, right. Like, that's first... during the date. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about when he first comes up to her, and um, you know, Albert Brooks's Tom is like, oh, I can help you, sir. He says, No, no, I'll, I'll talk to her. And then he just starts talking to her a little bit intimate, uh, like um, intensely, you know. And she's like, uh, she says, Well, you're here to volunteer. What do you like about Charles Palantine? Yeah, I think he's cool, um, but I think you're very interesting. Can I take you out? Mm-hmm. And then she she tries to pivot back to Palantine again, not really saying no, but pivoting back. And he's like, I, I think he says something along the lines of like, "Look, I don't I don't know much about Palantine, but I just know you're the mo- you're one of the most beautiful women I ever met. I want to take you out. Very charming, mm-hmm. but again, and this is the this is the great nuance of De Niro's performance. You can tell something's off with this guy. You know, Betsy is in between being, you know intrigued and a little a little apprehensive of like i don't know how to feel about this fella you know what i mean you also have to keep in mind prior to him finally walking in and asking he's been like he'll sit outside of that office you know in his cab and everything just watching into the office and looking at her and at one point one of the other people that's you know working with her had to go out and be like, "Hey, man, you're blocking the doorway. Can you, you know, move and everything like that?" And he kind of Tom. skittered yeah. off. Yeah, Tom. And so with him finally coming inside and kind of just actually approaching her and everything, yeah, it, you can tend tell that she's a little bit tense about the situation. But going, okay, it it doesn't seem like he's psychotic. He seemed well intentioned, and he's got really good charisma. So, I, and his appearance changed then too. So I don't yeah. think she knows. 
Here's my interpretation. I don't think she knows he was a taxi driver looking at her from afar. She just knows there was a taxi driver outside that day. Oh, you know, okay. His appearance changes now. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's a bit more spruced up when he finally decides to ask her out. So they, they go out, they have coffee and one of like the most one of the most sensual yet weird coffee dates <laughs> I've ever seen in a movie. Cause like again, he goes into that thing of like, yeah, that guy you work with, um, I don't like him. He, he, I mean, I'm sure he's fine. He just comes off like a funny guy. And, you know, he, uh, I don't think you should be around a funny guy. You know, like, mm-hmm. you could tell, like, like, again, we've been following this guy this far in the movie. We's like, okay, if he doesn't like that guy, that guy should run. Right. Yeah. But, he's in trouble. This, <laughs> right. But this woman's just like, I mean, you know, he's, he's cool. He's a guy I work with. He's, he's fine. You know, and at some point she refers to him at, um, after a Chris, Chris Christopherson song calling him a walking contradiction. And uh, that fits in so much more as the film, you know, sets up for things that happen later in the film. But um, I want to talk about how, you know what I mean? They, uh, they go on their date and uh, you know, it's a, I think the date starts off solid, but then he goes to, you know, an adult movie and she goes, you know, you're kidding, right? This is an adult movie. Like, this is like, this is like a nudie picture. It's like, oh no, it's nothing like that. It's it's artistic, you know. She goes, oh, plenty okay. of couples come. It's it's not like a lonely thing. It's you know, everybody goes right. to these. Um, you know, cut to they get in there. She runs out, you know, kind of disgusted. And um, I love how across the street you see a Clint Eastwood movie playing, mm-hmm. uh, that that the Elder Sanchin or something, and you're just like, dude, why didn't you just take her to a Clint film? <laughs> like, why? It was right across the street. Yeah, that's the moment where she says, I'm going to get a cab. And he's like, I, I have a cab. <laughs> I have a taxi. Or, right, yeah, right. I have a taxi. <laughs> yeah. And um, basically, um, I like how so I like the way Scorsese described this scene, because when I first saw it, I was a little thrown off. But the the scene where he's calling her saying, hey, you know, I, I haven't spoke to you in a while. And then the camera kind of pans away from him on the phone to the hallway um you know scorsese always said he did that because the conversation was just so embarrassing to watch it's like the audience (laughs) just needs to turn away from travis as he's just failing on the phone oh okay you don't know how long you're gonna get sick oh all right well well, all right i'll I'll talk to you later yeah i i've never taken that interpretation of it before but i absolutely love it the idea that it's like oh man you, you can't watch this i'm sorry this is just this is too awful yeah, we'll we'll show you gore and blood later on and everything like that. But this this right. is too much, man. I I can't handle recording this. I love um when he first sits down with uh Wizard, uh played by Peter Boyle and the other taxi drivers. This is kind of like the first sign of us seeing his his mental state starting to, you know, like 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 go off the rails. He mm-hmm. puts an Alcacet, one of my favorite shots, he puts an Alcacetor in uh in his water. And you just see it bubbling up and you see the the camera slowly going into it. And then you also see him, you know, looking at some other people, um, you know, some 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 uh, black patrons in the store. I mean, one of them kind of looks like a pimp or something like that. But you just see him kind of look at them as if they're like otherworldly, like like a certain like a certain type of threat. Um, and it kind of leads into like, you know, a little bit of like Travis, like, a you know, downward spiraling mental state as the film goes on. But um, I like how in one of the other scenes, he uh, he goes to talk to Wizard outside. This is a different scene. And um, <laughs> it's such a funny scene, dude. Like when I watch it, the the uh, 
when I, when I watched this so many times, uh, he goes, uh, he says, Wiz, man, I got some, I, I got some dark thoughts, man. I, I need your help. He says, yeah, you're driving a lot, man. It happens. He, he gets, yeah, but I, 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 I really, I really got some dark thoughts, man. Now, when you hear this from a friend of yours, you would think to, you know, say something with some, hey, man, you know, don't, don't take the job too hard. You know, go, go, go enjoy yourself. Take a vacation. This guy goes, well, you know, a man has a job, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> He becomes that job, you know, and it's uh, it's it's the job. You know what I mean? And then I love how Travis just kind of looks around and goes, Wizard, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> and then he goes, dude, I'm a taxi driver. What do you want from me? Yeah. <laughs> I thought that scene was so hilarious. The, the scenes with his co-workers are absolutely great because, yeah, they are such awkward conversations like that. But... Mm-hmm. They're realistic conversations that just people that are in this job line would be having and everything like talking about the people that they picked up and the like stories that they tell about that and everything. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, you have that moment where it's like, I got some dark thoughts, man. And it's like, oh, this is getting real. Oh, they're just going to push that aside. Yeah. You know what? That's exactly what they would do if the <laughs> this conversation came up. If one of them was right. like, hey, man, I need some therapy. Well, yeah, you should probably get that therapy then. I don't know what you want from me. I'm just a guy. <laughs> right, right. And, and I want to say something. You know, one of the many interpretations of the film is kind of like the subliminal kind of like, you know, racism Travis is going in his head, too. Because I told you the one scene with the the pimps in the restaurant. Mm-hmm. And then there's that one other taxi driver, the, the black man. Um, you know, when when he's about to leave out with Wizard to give him the whole dark thought speech, he says, Hey, Travis, and he makes a gun. And the way Travis looks at him, cut to outside. There's some other black people walking outside that he kind of has a slow motion stare at, like looking frightened. This is mm-hmm. kind of like adding into like Travis's mental state, you know what I mean? Like, because he goes around in the in the hood version of New York City doing the taxi driving, some of it. And, you know, it, it's kind of starting to become where he's looking at it as kind of like an actual jungle. Um, this leads to what I feel is like one of the greatest director cameo scenes um, I've ever seen, where Martin Scorsese himself plays this guy that takes the cab. And the scene is interpreted to, like, either be real or be a part of, like, Travis's subconscious. Yeah. But the guy just goes, uh, hey. Hey, you, you see, you see that silhouette up there? No, no. At first, he says, he says, "Don't stop the tap cab fare. Leave the cab fare going. Let's just just pause." And you know, Travis just pauses. And he says, "You see that silhouette up there?" Travis looks up. He says, "That's my wife. She's sleeping with a black man. Can you believe that?" And then Martin Scorsese goes, "I'm gonna kill her. I'm I'm, I'm gonna kill her with a magnum." And then um, he starts he starts just kind of going off rambling. He says, he says, um, you know, you ever saw what a magnum did with a face? No, you should see what a Magnum does with the vagina. That you yeah. should see. <laughs> I was like, yeah. dude, this is insane. It's such an awkward scene, too, because the way that it starts right. is he has Travis pull over and he starts to stop the tab as if like, oh, he's going to get off here and everything like that. And he's like, no, 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 mm-hmm. keep the tab running. You know, we're going to sit here. No, no, keep the tab running. And... So Travis like puts the tab back up slowly and he's still like trying to figure out what's going on and he starts mm-hmm. writing something in his book. And, you know, uh, of course, Martin Scorsese's character is like, hey, what, are you writing? Hey, what are you writing? <laughs> right. Stop writing. Yeah. You know, 
And um, I want to say, you see this character at one of the point in the movie, I think it's earlier. He's like sitting out. You see Martin Scorsese's character sitting outside on the steps when uh, I think when Bessie first arrives as a character and she walks into work, um, his gaze kind of follows her. It's kind of a blinking you'll miss it type of scene. I had to see it online. I was going to say, I didn't know that he had another scene in this movie. Yeah, it's earlier in the movie. I I missed it, too. But after like looking it up, I, uh, I, 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 I was shown it. But uh, yeah, so basically this kind of falls in line with when he starts to meet Iris. Iris is a young lady of the night, uh, very like looks underage, very underage, who uh, runs inside his cab one day trying to escape. But um, her pimp sport, you know, drags her out. And that's kind of like, um, OK, and sport leaves a 20 with him. And that's kind of like the one the first encounter that Travis has with Iris. He doesn't know how to react. He's kind of just like thrown off by it. And then later on. Travis comes acting as a um, a John to go be with Iris. When he gets in the room with Iris and everything, he he goes like, "Listen, I got to get you out of here. You you got parents. We got to get you home to your parents." And Iris is like, uh, "Man, such a terrific young performance by Jodie Foster too." Um, you know, she she goes like, "Oh, you know, you're a square. You know, why would I go home? I'm, I'm I can leave anytime I want." Mm-hmm. And and Travis. Even though you know there's something wrong with this man, you you get why he's trying to help. He feels like in his mind he needs to do something heroic. So in his mind, he's like, he's like, listen, I got to get you out of here. You know, uh, you know, listen, I, I t- all right, let's, let me just take you out to breakfast. Let's just go out to breakfast. So they go out to breakfast one day and he's like, you know, listen, like you, you really got to get out of here. Like, you know, I know you got parents that love you. This world is for you. Like that sport guy called you a... Uh, what did he say he caught her? I'm trying to recall, but... Basically, in so many words, he called her a plaything. Right. And she's feeling like she really attracts the sport, you know, due to his astrology sign or something, uh, which is realistic dialogue for, for a teenage girl. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We got the same astrology sign. Yeah. Yeah, you know. We're a match, you know. You're coming off a lot like a Capricorn right now with uh, that attitude right. that you have. Right, right. So basically, he tries to convince her, like, listen, you need to get out of here. And that that conversation leaves right there. And um, I want to say I like how as the film progresses, right, you know, he 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 walks in on Betsy, yells at her because she 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 ghosted him. You know, he's starting to become a little more undone. He meets the he meets the uh, the gun salesman. You know, um, we, we start to say, OK, this is going into a bad place. And I love how the interior monologue gets more unhinged as we go on too. We go from uh yeah, you know, I did my shift today to all right, listen up you 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 cocksuckers, you jackasses. Like <laughs> yeah. The interior monologue becomes more uh, you know. He becomes more and more unhinged as the movie goes on. But one thing I want to go back to with uh when he's at breakfast with Iris and they're discussing and everything like that. And the way that he's going, look, you can't just be selling yourself like this. You know, you have a lot of opportunities. You have a lot of things that you can do with your life. You know, you can get out of this. You know, your pimp is literally abusing you and you're just going back for it and everything. And I love her response to that is, I don't know who sounds more crazy, you or me in this Mm. entire situation. And it's like one of those first times that somebody's looked at Travis and told him straight up, your worldview isn't the right one. Not saying that hers is, 
but that there is definitely something wrong with the way that he's viewing the world and thinking that he can change her just over some pancakes, you know? Mm. And I think that kind of sticks with him a little bit throughout the rest of the movie as well, as he like gets more and more unhinged is this thing of like his world perception being wrong and him going, no, there's no way this I'm, I'm a hero. I'm going to be a hero. I'm going to do something that is going to change lives. Absolutely. You know what I thought was kind of like, you know, we can kind of go into like the climax after this if you want, but you know what I thought was kind of like the most painful scene that really deserved that panning shot rather than that, that, uh, that phone call breakup Mm -hmm. is when he's, when he's talking to the Secret Service guy, oh, he's God. like, that scene was so... I got secondhand embarrassment watching that scene. Like, that's how you know how great De Niro's acting is in this. He says, hey, you know, um, you know, I, I, I want to be in the Secret Service. And, uh, you, you know, there, there, I saw some unsavory characters uh, over there, some, some hippies. Oh, hey, why don't I take down your name and uh, I'll talk to you about being a one of us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Well, it's even like like the slow ramp up of the conversation of him going, you know, that's pretty cool. You know, your Secret Service and everything like that. You know, I always thought I could be Secret Service because I'm real good at watching people. You know, I I notice people. I notice a lot of things like I saw some unsavory people over there earlier. You know, I uh, I don't see them now, but I think I think they're still here. And then go like, what kind of gun do you use? Is it like one of these? You know, do you use this? You know, have you ever shot a guy with one of these? You know, and mm. it, it it kind of pulls back to the conversation he had with uh, Scorsese's character in the taxi right. of like, have you ever seen somebody, you know, get killed with this gun? You ever see it in this way kind of thing? Uh, it does. It does tie back to that. Yeah. I didn't catch that. So it's basically him taking conversations that he had otherwise and going, oh, that's a perfectly normal conversation and bringing that into a new light. And then as the Secret Service is like listening to this, he's kind of going, well, maybe this this isn't the right kind of conversation to have with this guy. Maybe this isn't right. Mm. And so he gives gives him the, you know, fake name and address and everything like that. And then he just runs off to get away. But even before that, the I think it's the scene before that is when he starts training with the guns. Or did it come after he talked to the Secret Service? I think it might have been after. Okay. Cause Don't quote me on that, though. I, I want to I know there's a couple of them. I want to say one of them happened. It was before. I think it was before. It does happen before. I think so. Okay, because. I love the scenes where they're kind of showing him like testing out the different things where he has like the two guns on his sides and he's like testing how quickly he can pull them out and, you know, shoot mm. them and everything like that. He has like the knife on his boot that he's like taped there. Yeah. And, you know, like he's sitting in bed and then he like quickly gets up and grabs the knife and kind of like stabs the air. And he's like, okay, yeah, yeah. And then he tapes it back up. He lays back down and it's like, you, you can tell he's practicing this. And yeah, one of the one that I still absolutely love the scene of is the first time that he uses the contraption on his arm that like auto loads the pistol into his hand. And it's mm-hmm. like, oh, I love that because it's such a smooth shot. Yeah, that it's one that, you know, I, I could probably watch that clip, you know, all day and be like, oh, that is just so smooth how it just it literally whips right into his hand. And, yeah. you know, it, it just works so well for being something that he just 
created in his apartment. Absolutely. Um, you know, if this guy put this uh, type of energy and imagination into something useful, he could actually run a taxi driver company. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know oh, what absolutely. <laughs> you know what I mean? But uh, that, that's, that's the ironic thing about it. And then you got the iconic, you know, you, you talking to me scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, what I wanted to talk about was uh, when he when he first harmed somebody. Right. He um, there's a, a black man robbing a store, uh, a convenience store, and uh, he shoots him. And uh, the guy that's behind the counter, he says, hey, uh, I, listen, I don't have a permit for this. I I, 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 uh, I I, don't know if I killed him or not. Guy's like, listen, get out of here. I'll take care of it. He's getting out of there. The guy's just completely hitting him with a bat. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this is like, this place is a jungle. I'm like, this place is a jungle. And it's and it's, it's not right for somebody like this that could bubble up at any moment, becoming more violent. Like him beating up the guy as he was walking away just re, like re um, reinforces his position as needing to get rid of the scum of the earth. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can definitely tell that the environment he's in is negatively affecting him. Like as absolutely. the movie goes on, it's literally every event that happens basically is seen as like a domino in this guy's life that is leading to the next thing. And he's constantly calling back to previous incidents and everything. Yeah. So, you know, cutting to, um, you know, Travis, Listen, if 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 I couldn't be more obvious was a person, cuts his hair into a mohawk, comes comes to the Palatine uh, rally, um, you know, and and this is how badly this goes. The Secret Service agents immediately see him, and he just goes off running away before he can even like fully unzip his jacket and and pull out the gun. Mm-hmm. So at this point, he he evades the Secret Service, of course. So he needs to get off his violent energy. He he's set to go off. He left some money for um, Iris, and he 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 needs to get rid of scum. If he can't do Palatine, he needs to go somewhere else. So he comes across Sport the Pimp. He shoots him, uh, shoots the man inside Garden, and just goes into a murderous rampage with um, the John that's with Iris, the guy that was guarding the door, Sport. You know, just like it, and you got to think about Iris this whole time. I was like, this kid. In the end, she ends up being reunited with her parents, but parents, but damn, is she going to be traumatized by this? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, because not only has she had that life as like a child prostitute, but then this one guy comes in, guns akimbo, and kills everybody that at her point in life, she feels she can trust. And Mm -hmm. he comes in and goes, no, no, this is the way you go. This is... This is a better way for you. You you got to trust me and everything as he's killing the people that are all around here. And mm-hmm. even then, you know, he is so insane looking during this scene with the new mohawk and everything and his like new jacket that him holding the guns. And I'd love when the police come and they're just looking at him. They're just like, I don't I don't know what to take from this. Like, what what do we do with this? Where do we right. go? Because oh, yeah. he's so injured, he can't even do anything at that point. He's kind of laying there. They can tell mm-hmm. he's still alive, obviously, but he's not reacting to the cops being there. And everybody else around him is dead, except for this, you know, child prostitute that's just sitting in the corner of the room, terrified. And they're just like, what do we what what do we make of this situation? There is nothing for us to grab here to make sense of what just happened. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I love that terrific crane shot, man. Like, mm-hmm. you know, as you're going from Travis sitting there just, you know, unconscious to Iris crying, the dead bodies, the officers kind of like scratching their heads almost, to everybody outside with the news cameras. And, um, and dude, we haven't even talked about this, that that music score, man. Yeah. I mean, um, Bernard Herman's like final music score and what what a final music score to have, dude. Like, uh, I love the way it just like drums up as you're like fading to the outside and everything like that. It's uh, it's great, man. It, it really is great. So, you know, cut to in the end. Uh, Travis is a hero. Back to the same old, same old. Actually, back to taxi driving. And here's where, and it's it's up to your interpretation if, when you watch it, folks. But here's where you're like, I don't know if this is really going on in his head or if this is for real. Um, Betsy is in his car and, you know, she goes, I, uh, I hear you were a hero. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I was like, yeah, I, I do not see this happening I, in reality. I think this is the delusion that he's having. I don't think there's any, right. like, I know it's left for interpretation, but it's right. gotta be a delusion because given how disgusted she was by him and the fact that she hasn't talked to him since, it, mm-hmm. She doesn't come off as the kind of person that'd be like, oh, he's a hero now. That person that's absolutely disgusting and I want to avoid at all costs. He saved somebody. Oh, then let me just, you know, forgive everything and try and be with him again. This is obviously the happy ending he expects after being a hero. Yeah. And I love that little moment where when she's out the car, he goes like, uh, she goes, what I owe you? He says, he says, I ah, don't worry about it. Drives off. And then you see, you hear like a little bit of a screeching noise or something when he fixes the mirror, and then you smash cut to the credits while you know um, just riding down New York City. Mm-hmm. I said, "Man, it's like that." Just leaves you just like with an experience right there, man. And it's almost like a dream. I think Roger Ebert had looked at that final scene with Betsy in the back seat as kind of like a dream, uh, especially with the music score. And I think that's what it can be. I think it's a dream of his. I think it's kind of in his head. But again, up for uh, contemplation or up for imagination. Um, but um, yeah, dude, Taxi Driver is one of the best. Uh, even if, you know, you've listened to this episode and we just described most of it to you, it doesn't add up to actually watching the film. Like even with it coming out, even with this film coming out decades ago, it still is a fastly paced mm-hmm. psychological thriller that just needs to be experienced. It's a cult classic movie for a reason. And one I wouldn't that, even say cult. Uh, you know what? Yeah, it's it's up there as yeah. a classic movie. You know, but when this when the when the U.S. Library of Congress selects your film for preservation in the National Film Registry, I, I think you've gone past cult status. That's true. It's had so many re-releases that there's no way that this movie can become lost media at any point in time. When your film gets played on Turner Classic Movies, you, you, you're beyond cult status. Yeah, you, you made it. You're right. You're right. I, I'm, you know, but... It's all good. Yeah, this this movie is just such a classic movie that even if you know how it's going to go and how everything plays out, even on second viewings, this movie just has so many great shots. It has such great dialogue. The character kind of like slowly growing as you're watching him into this like insane lunatic. It's just so well paced that you don't really catch it as it's immediately happening until there's little moments of him talking to people. And you're like, hold on. 
no, that doesn't sound odd for him, but that's crazy. And then it's like, mm-hmm. wait, that doesn't sound odd for him to be saying that either, but that's absolutely insane. And then when you like start comparing how he's talking, like in the beginning of the movie toward the end, you're like, this is a completely different person, but it's such a slow climb to that. You don't notice like the stages until you're like, hold on. That's, that's definitely different than he was a half an hour ago. Yeah, absolutely. Just such a nuanced performance. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, 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 there's no debate here, man. This is a DFV classic, uh, five out of five yeah i can't see any way that i can give this less than a five out of five it's just i love this movie like i said at the beginning you you started pitching this episode and you're like taxi driver and i was like i'm in already there's there's no way i'm getting out of this one yes sir yes sir all right yep absolutely we know what it is now it's time to move on to uh you know one of paul schrader's uh, uh newer films in his later career here That brings us to our second movie today, First Reformed, which follows the story of Pastor Ernest Toller, who is a pastor at the First Reformed Church in Snowbridge, New York, a kind of defunct church that acts more as a historical figure than anything else at this point. But slowly as he meets a couple that is going through some marital concerns and requests his help, his existence slowly delves into madness as he has to figure out things about his past, where he wants to be in the future, and where that ends with the church, the environment, and everything else around him in this new corporatized version of the religion in which that he is a part. And yeah, without getting too deep into it, that is the best I can do for like a bare bones description because as we start getting into this movie, it's there's a lot to it. And especially with Pastor Ernest Toller, the fact that he is sick throughout this movie and kind Mm. of putting his health aside and everything like that. And he's trying to help other people. You can tell that his heart is in the right place as this pastor, you know, his the there's only maybe like 10 people that still go to this church. And one of them is the, uh, one of the people, uh, Mary Mansana, who kind of approaches the pastor and goes, my husband is, you know, feeling that he has thoughts that don't go along with the church. You know, we're, we're about to have a baby and he's concerned about bringing this baby into the world and everything that leads into. And, we meet him and find out that uh, his name is Michael and that he's a huge environmentalist that he follows all the news on everything that's going on in the environment, how corporations are destroying it and trying to be like, look, I I love the conversations he has with uh, Mm -hmm. Toller and going through and being like, okay, so the environment is absolutely going to shit. You know, corporations are polluting everywhere, and anybody that tries to defy them is just killed off. You know, the world isn't going to survive too much longer. How do I bring somebody into this world and then at some point look them dead in the eyes and go, yeah, I knew that this was a shit show, but I still brought you in here anyway. So now you can deal with this with the rest of us. And Mm -hmm. I I love how... 
Pastor Toller kind of, he gives remarks of like, sometimes, you know, you, you just have to accept what's going on and you have to, you know, this and mm-hmm. how things are. And sometimes you just, you can't make the differences you want, but at the same time, you have to give that life its opportunity to make those choices themselves. You can't make the choice for that life instead. And as he's like the inner monologue of him going home and going, I don't know if those are the best things I could have said. Like, right. what you go on. You see him. I was going to say the, the thing that makes this character so great, right? Is that he knows, um, you know, as a pastor, he takes that responsibility seriously. Almost to the point where he gets a little self, as we all do in our minds, get a little self-conscious of like, am I telling this young man the right thing? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like, like God, give me, like, Lord, give me a sign that I'm saying the right thing here. Cause I don't want to lead him astray. Am, am I not right for this role? Like, I love that there's that type of vulnerability there in that scene. Right. And yeah, it, it happens throughout the movie as well with his uh, journals mm-hmm. that he constantly is going, look, I, I've, I'm having these thoughts and these, and then like, you'll see an update a couple days later where it's going, You'll notice that the last five pages are missing. I, I was in a bad place when I wrote those, and I do not need them in the record. You know, mm, it, it like yeah. he, he acts like his journal is like his accounts for future people of some kind. And mm-hmm. it's a way to like try and help other people in the future that might be going through the same thing he's going through because he's lost a child, you know, to war. He's mm-hmm. made choices. He's done things. And he wants to make sure that other people don't make the same mistakes he did while also refusing to acknowledge that he has made mistakes himself. Mm-hmm. And kind of just going, well, this is just the way it is. And this is how it is and everything like that. But yeah, it's one of the uh, parts of the movie that I absolutely still kind of even after watching it the entire thing through is as you know pastor teller is kind of going through with this uh the mensana family and everything uh, mary discovers a suicide vest that you know michael has hidden away in the garage and everything and mm-hmm. a part of that is her going i found this you know i i think that he might be trying to do something and I don't know what it is. And she sets up another scheduled like visit with Michael and they are set to meet in the woods. And he finds out that Michael has been shot in the face with a shotgun. That's, you know, right there next to his body and everything. How did you feel about that scene? Because that's still. Well, it's well. It, well, he shot, well, let's be let's be clear. He shot himself. It was a self-inflicted gunshot yeah. wound. It was suicide. Um, man, then when I first saw that scene, it's so cold and detached. It 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 it's unsettling. Like when it first happens, it's 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 shot in a very cold and detached way. Even um, Ethan Hawke's character is just thrown off by it. Kind of backs up a little bit. But like as the, the as as um by, when I left the theater when I first saw the movie, the scene played over like played a little bit more in my mind, and it's a it's a very unsettling scene. It is, but there is a part of it that I do question the authenticity of his suicide because okay, as you go back, 
in the beginning of it, when he's first talking to Michael and everything like that, he mm-hmm. mentions to Michael, have you had like any thoughts of self-harm or of harming others? And Michael's like, no. It, did my wife mention anything about that? Like, And obviously the pastor goes, no, no, no just kind of asking, you know, just trying to feel the room and everything like that. And then his wife happens to find this suicide vest that's very neatly hidden away with, mm-hmm. you know, under several boxes in this box, everything hidden away here. And this is just like a day after their meeting that she happens to stumble upon this. And then the next day he's dead. And keep in so, mind the, what started with her going to the pastor is right. uh, Michael with her being pregnant, they were having a debate on should they keep the baby or should she get an abortion? Michael was very much on the pro abortion side and she was not. Mm, and it brings yeah. into question is is there something more sinister with that one? Because the way that all the information is presented, it almost doesn't come off like that was him. Oh, you oh, so you're thinking about something darker. You think it's her that you think she shot him? I, kinda. Because at the same time I've taken that interpretation before. You hmm. know, the fact that she happened to find the suicide vest and everything like that. You know, right. she happened to be the one that was trying to get the pastor involved and everything. And she noticed, like, obviously, Michael's, you know, determination for that side of the argument didn't go through after just speaking with the pastor the first time. She was one constantly pushing for the pastor and getting the pastor right. involved and kind of like it, it almost seems like she's creating this alibi with the pastor to be like, look, if he doesn't want to be in this world with my baby then that's that's that i don't i didn't take that as her makeup as, as a character okay um it's an interesting take it it really is but with this being like my second or third time viewing the film i don't know that's that's not my interpretation of it my interpretation of this, is is this guy was very disturbed and when you're really down in the dumps not like oh today's just a down uh day for me it's just a down month when you're that down in the dumps, yeah, you're you're very much capable of that, and it's um, it's 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 not a far cry for that to just suddenly happen. Um, yeah, I don't, I didn't take that, I I didn't take okay. that interpretation. Um, but I but I will say it it is an unsettling scene that that kind of comes out of nowhere uh, when it happens. But just speaking a little bit of um backstory for me with this film, so. When I first saw this film, I saw it, um, you know, at the main art theater in Michigan, you know, rest in peace. Mm. And initially I was going to wait for it to come to like DVD or streaming or whatever, because I was like, oh, I know Paul Schrader. Um, His last film before this film, it wasn't really favored that well. So I said, I'll wait on this one. I mean, I, I, I like Ethan Hawke, but I'll wait on this one. But the more I kept seeing reviews of like, dude, this might be Ethan Hawke's best performance. I was like, really? Ethan Hawke has a lot of great performances. You saying this is his best? He says, yeah, this might be one of Paul Schrader's best films. I said, well, that's intriguing. Because like, when you look at Paul Schrader's later career, mm-hmm. I want to say before this, because lately he's been killing it like post-First Reformed. But before this movie, it was kind of up and down a little bit. But uh, you know, people were saying, like, like dude, Cedric the Entertainer is great in this film. 
was like, is that just the entertainers in this movie? You know, and the more I started hearing things, I said, let me just get a ticket and go see this film. And it was crazy because I appreciate this film way more in my 30s than I did back then because I knew by the end of the movie, I was like, I didn't quite know what I just watched, but I know I watched something that resembles cinema. And it took a few rewatches for me to like fully appreciate First Reformed. Because the first thing is, we don't even see Cedric the Entertainer's name as Cedric the Entertainer in the credits. He's Cedric Kyles. Yeah. I said, oh, okay. This this is a real acting role for Cedric. Right. All right, let me let me see. Let me see what this adds up to. And dude, he's so damn good in this. Everyone is good, but like Cedric is so good in this movie as um as uh, uh Pastor the, Joel Jefferson. Yeah, the pastor of the mega church that's right next to the first reformed. Yeah, he's so good in this. Amanda Seyfried as Mary is so good in this. Ethan Hawk. Uh, we'll talk on it a little bit later, but I, I think this could be his best performance that I've seen out of him. But what I would say is when I was watching this film, initially I was like, dude, a film about a pastor struggling with his faith. I mean, I can wait for that to come to streaming. Mm-hmm. But it's like when you watch this film and the way this film tackles, you know, struggling with your faith, but also putting you in the mindset of, you know, digging deep into a, a conspiracy that has to do with the environment and you know, having that kind of mess with your mind a little bit, it, it rings echoes a taxi driver. Mm-hmm. You know, Pastor Ernest is already like grieving his son who joined the war because his dad was in the war and he's been grieving with that for so long. He's already dealing with a debilitating disease. Uh, he already doesn't want to get checked out. And it's like just coming to terms that he's going to die soon. And then he's hearing about this environmental stuff and getting sucked into this family that he he. He, he feels close to, especially like the, the widowed uh, wife, you know, it starts to that something like that can mess with your mental when you already have demons and now you got larger demons. Like that's the genius of first reformed when I look back on it, like how it how it, you know, the the measured steps to madness is is measured very well, as well as it was measured in taxi driver. That's how, you know, it's a yes. That's another great thing about Paul Schrader's writing in this. Um, so when you're watching this movie, right, and you're starting to understand Pastor Ernest's relationship with other characters, you know, Joel Jeffers, you know, he's the mega church pastor, you know, he's the he's the well-known pastor. And, you know, he he believes in Ernest. Ernest, you know, as he said in one piece of dialogue, says, You once came to me, um, wanted to be a pastor, and I gave you the job because I believed in you. He believes in Ernest, but he wants Ernest to get better. He wants Ernest to like, you know, get himself checked out, but respectfully only only Ernest can agree to get Ernest checked out. You know what I'm saying? Like like get himself feeling better and get himself healthy. Right. He has to want it in order for it to happen. Right. And then you got Esther, a woman who, you know, once had a, a you know, um a intimate relationship with Ernest who Ernest isn't interested in in anymore. And she's very pushy. And and I love how the film, because I don't think Esther is a bad person, but Esther is very pushy, almost to the point where when she's trying to learn about Ernest's uh, results and everything like that, she really crosses the line mm. and I think calls up the hospital where he went to to get the results. And it's such a brutal scene, but it's so justified where he kind of goes, "I look, I hate you. Like, leave me alone. I, I, I don't want, want you do in my you. life. Yeah, it's such a brutal scene. But it's like you get where he's coming from. Like, leave me alone to die. This is my business. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it, it yeah. definitely, you know, especially when you're going through like his health concerns and everything like that, he constantly is pushing mm-hmm. it off throughout the movie. And mm-hmm. when he does finally go and they do some tests on him and everything like that, and he is still reluctant to do any of the tests because yeah. they start going, well, we want to do this procedure to see if there's anything here. And he goes, do you think it's cancer? And they're like, well, we don't know for sure. And you can tell in his mind, he's like, if right. it's cancer, there's nothing that can be done. It's it's a game over situation. Why am I wasting my time with this? I, I should be doing something to make change in this world. And mm. it, it kind of falls with a parallel with Travis, where he is trying to be a hero in his own way here. And mm. with the way that everything is written here. But... With yeah. him, it, he has a different way of going about it. He wants to save people by bringing them to, you know, the church and being able to save them in that way. But he's slowly starting to relinquish his faith a little bit as everything's coming on because she's getting involved with these conspiracies that you mentioned for like the industry that are polluting the environment and everything. Yeah. And then finding out one of those industries that's heavily doing this is the one that's funding his church funding the uh the upcoming um uh what what, what was the service they were calling it the uh the 250 uh, year anniversary of yeah the church right the anniversary service um and i i would argue that he's not relinquishing his faith but he's confusing his faith with his mission to uh, you know, like like Travis Bickle, rid the world of this nastiness, which is this environmentalist corrupt business. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would argue that. But one of the things I love is that, um, you know, you, you start to see a little bit of the hinges of his of his um his mental state going off a little bit. Like, I love this scene. It plays off like comedy. Uh, no, it, no, it plays off serious, but it's so uncomfortably funny when the kids come. And he 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 shows the kids. He says, "Yeah, kids. Um, you know the Underground Railroad. This was uh one of the places where uh you know the slaves hid." He says, "Uh, come, let me show you." So it comes off so friendly and you know uh pastorly. And then he opens the thing and shows them. He says, "This is where the slaves used to hide." Then he goes, "Can't you picture it? People waiting down there, not knowing if they were gonna die." Yeah. The only thing is the kids. The way that he does it too. It's even worse than right. that. It's literally. Under these floorboards in the darkness, the only thing you hear is the breath of your own family and the footsteps of the slave hunters above you, questioning if they're going to find that door, questioning if they're going to find you, and what's going to happen if they do. And it just, it keeps getting worse and worse. And then, yeah, it just abruptly cuts. And it's just like, Jesus Christ, this movie. As he's saying this to children. Right. Absolutely. So, you know, and, and here, here's another great scene that I want to highlight. Um, the scene where it's him and Mary and uh, she she plays this game with him saying, hey, you know, I used to play this game where it's like, uh, you know, we lay on the floor and we try to cover each other's up, c- try to cover up each other's bodies as much as we can. Now, you know, any other a lesser film like this would have turned this into into like a like a sex scene or something. Mm-hmm. But I like how this film plays it off. You know, it starts off very kind of sensual like you know where she lays on top of him mind you she's pregnant and you know he, he's enjoying the game and then there's this kind of like vision that happens where they they float off off the ground 
And then we start to see a little bit of like Ernest's consciousness where the camera zoom, the camera goes past them. And we start to see kind of like a montage of like a, 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 a forest an, being an turned down, you know, yeah. lakes being polluted, a corporation. It just it, it, we start Dude. seeing his inner monologue of these mm-hmm. fears and doubts that he has. Yeah, yeah, that was um, yeah, that was that was great, man. That was a great shot. I love that mm-hmm. whole transition, that whole montage. I thought that was like terrific directed work on straight on Schrader's part. Um, so we go from that, and then uh, oh, I want to I want to mention one scene before we get to the climax. Um, I love how, dude, this one guy Edward, who is like the you know the big the big uh the big boss guy. Oh yeah, the uh, the owner of the company that is funding everything. Right. This dude's line cuts real deep uh, when he says to him, like, you know, because he starts to you know, get in Ernest's face about like, uh, you know, you did this. Uh, you did a service here for this young man at this uh, protest against our company. Uh, we want to leave this out of the upcoming anniversary. But he says it in kind of like a douchey way. Hmm. And, you know, the whole time Cedric's character is trying to, like, keep the peace a little bit like, um, yeah, listen, we're, we're, we're doing this for the service. We're not going to bring up your company and with what's going on. And at some point, Ernest fights back a little bit like, uh, well, well, why do you do this? And why are you uh, doing this to the earth in so many ways? You know, and then at some point, Ernest makes mention that this young man, you know, killed himself and that he was his pastor. He says, oh, so so you were his pastor. And after you became his pastor, he killed himself, huh? Yeah. I was like, dang, that, dang, you didn't have to be a jerk and say that. Yeah. Like, you know. Well, it's also before that he is talking about, well, you know, there is evidence that you guys did pollute into the, and he comes in with like this statistic right away. Well, it was only a 9.2, blah, blah, blah. You know, let me worry about my company, not you. You know, you worry about your church. Let me worry about what I'm doing. You know, it's too big for you to understand. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um so basically, cut to the climax here. And dude, this is, this is like for for a scene that revolves in the church and um, you know, a, a woman singing a beautiful, you know, um church hymn, this mm. is one of the most tense endings I've ever seen. Yeah. Like, you know, so basically we we go from Ernest, um, he he has a plan. He's uh gonna bomb the uh he's gonna he's gonna do do a suicide, he's gonna put on the suicide vest that um the young the young man that killed himself had. And uh, he's going to go inside the church and he's going to blow himself up. And he's he's thinking this is going to solve the issue. Okay, the head honcho of the company is in the church and, you know, whoever else gets blown up gets blown up. And this is going to solve the issue. Yeah, this is his mindset. So he this is so unsettling. So he thinks at one point Mary is gone because he saw Mary off to go go with her parents. And he told Uh, go to her her sister's house. Yeah, go to her sister, excuse me. And, he, and she says, well, I want to go to the anniversary. It's a big deal. He goes, no, I don't want you going to the anniversary. You go to your sister's. Mm-hmm. So lo and behold, she's there. And all the while, he's inside his um his home. This dude um, puts on the vest um, and um, he sees Mary. He has like a mental, a short mental breakdown. So then he removes the vest, wraps himself in barbed wire. In, in one of the most just just craziest scenes I've ever seen, mm-hmm. puts on his alb that's bleeding from the barbed wire underneath, and then pours a glass full of drain cleaner, 
And uh, all the while, you know, Esther is singing her heart out. Then that's when Mary comes in, runs up to her, kisses her, camera spins around, and shot. Yeah. the Watching that, so this is the first time that I've seen this movie. And mm-hmm. as this scene is going on, yeah, there's a lot of tension of questioning, like, oh my God, is he actually going to go through with this? And you see him slowly putting the vest on. He's buttoning it up, like, very particularly, putting his gown on over it and everything. And he's constantly checking out the window. And he sees, you know, Edward coming into the building. And he sees, you know, the uh, Pastor Joel coming into the building. And Mm -hmm. he's like, okay, this is all going to work and everything like that. And inside the church, everybody's waiting for him. You know, they're starting to get antsy because they're like, where's where's Toller? Where where is he? He should be here by now. He wanted to open up. You know, I gave him every chance. Where did he go? And at one point, like Joel even comes across and comes to his house and knocks on the door and like tries to enter it. But the door's locked. And this is after, you know, Ernest has looked out the window and ends up seeing Mary there and he has his freak out because he's like the moment of like clarity of like wait there are normal people in that church at the same time this isn't just the environmental kind of this is real life yeah this is this is real there's there's people in there that have nothing to do with this whatsoever i i shouldn't be doing this and the barbed wire see i still don't understand that what the I'm sure there's symbolism oh. there somewhere that I completely missed. I, I think that I think it's a religious symbolism thing. It's kind of like, you know, uh, penance. I, I would look at it as penance, you know, like personal penance for even thinking such a thing as a man of faith. You could look at it in different ways, even with the the kiss scene in the end. You know, most people, some people have interpreted it as this is in his head. This this kiss isn't happening here. Like he he drank the drain cleaner and this is a dream from this point on. Mm. Um, but either way, dream or not, it's just such a beautiful moment as the camera's panning and you're having like this very passionate kiss and then it just cuts the black. You know, Paul Schrader, I believe he did an A24 podcast with Sofia Coppola. They, they both had A24 films that were coming out around the same time. So they did an episode together. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, I leave the ending up to what people think it means. But if you ask me, I feel like he's, it's kind of like heaven. Like, you know, I've always been told heaven feels like a kiss with a beautiful woman, like a long, beautiful, like a long, great kiss with a beautiful woman. And I said, man, that's a that's a beautiful way to look at it, too. But it's just such a it's such a lyrical ending. I would call it lyrical. Yeah, it's definitely. Well, not only that, but as they're kissing, it just hard cuts to black and it's a black screen for a while before the credits start rolling. Because I was even watching this and I was going, did my stream freeze? Like, it, it, <laughs> did something happen here? And, a Sopranos moment. Yeah. And I, I literally, you know, pulled it up, paused it, and then played. And I could see the ticker going slowly across. I was like, okay, so it's not frozen. And then the credits started rolling. I was like, oh, okay. So that's just a very abrupt break. And then, you know, going. And... One thing to that is this movie has great pacing to it. Like, I didn't realize we were at the end of the movie when it came up to that scene. I if you were to 
ask me, oh, do you think that, you know, we're five minutes from the end at this point? I probably would have said no. You know, and then there it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's a um, yeah, it's a very well paced movie, which uh, surprised me when I saw it. I said, I said, well, if there's no real action in this movie, this film is going to go by slow. Mm -hmm. And it didn't at all. Like with the powerful acting with, you know, Ethan Hawke having what, what I think is his best performance in the lead. Everyone just given their A game cast wise. It, this film just went by real quick. Um, and that's what you call great drama. You know what I mean? Like, that's what you call great drama. When you've got great actors, great dialogue and great pacing. I mean, you can't you can't fail. Uh, Yeah, dude, I don't know how else to say this. I mean, it, Taxi Driver was an easy five, but. You know, this film is like growing over me, like 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 on my second or third time watching it. And I just think this film is to me is nothing short of a masterpiece. I would also give this a five. So on my first watch of this one, I think this is a four point five. OK, OK, fair enough. Yeah, it, it definitely it, it's it's a great movie. You know, I, mm -hmm. I love the way that plays with the themes and everything like that. But it, I think it's a very strong four point five. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm more so coming from the side of like, I've seen this multiple times. So like, mm. it's it's really seated in me and means something different to me in my 30s. And uh, yeah, dude, I think it's just a great film about faith, you know, loss. And, um, you know, uh, just, I, I don't want to say keeping your mental together, but like, like keeping your wits about you when so much is going on in the physical world or in the secular world, so to speak. That, you know, mm -hmm. if you're a man of faith or what have you, not letting that, not confusing that with what you should feel spiritually. Like, I, I think there are great weighty themes here when you really let this film sit in your mind. Oh, yeah, that I can definitely see. You know, there, there's mm -hmm. definitely a lot when it comes to religion, your faith, to environmentalism, you know, the corporatization of churches how they rely on funds and how they might look at these environmental issues differently from a church that doesn't have those same funds and everything. And somebody that has to deal with those consequences and know that this is something that's going on. You know, there, there's a lot to this movie. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Um, I'm going to give the slight edge to taxi driver uh, just off GP. I, I just think <laughs> taxi driver Taxi driver with a slight edge here is uh, the winner. It's just, um, you know, I think first reform is great cinema, but taxi driver is just one of those unbeatable tops that, you know. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. It, when it comes to this one, taxi driver wins out. And yeah, I, I didn't expect it to be a close match when you put taxi driver up against something else, but it is actually a pretty <laughs> close match. It is. It is. And um, I was really interested to see what you to hear what was you going to say about this film, especially, you know, first reform. But, yeah, it is a pretty close match. And um, going into after show here, man, I want to let you know, uh, it looks like we're, it looks like we're in the dawn of a new age, man. You know, Best Buy uh, said they're no longer selling physical media. Yeah. Physical media is on its way out at Best Buy. Outside of video games, they'll still carry video games, but no more CDs, DVDs, Blu-rays in their mm -hmm. store or online, too. That's the surprising thing is they also stated that they would not have physical media online. 
So That's they're crazy. just completely out of like the movie game outside of selling digital access codes. That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, it makes you it makes you think you're in a new age. I remember when I saw this and then I um I made a tweet on uh I still call it Twitter. I don't call it X. But uh <laughs> I I made a tweet uh with that uh Lord of the Rings uh gif so it begins. Yeah. Which which is a shame because I love having like collectors box sets of shows and like movies and everything like that. Like I enjoy buying that kind of stuff. It's mm-hmm. With everything going to like 4K and streaming, though, I'm finding myself like buying less and less of it, though. Me and too. Because before I used to like Black Friday was a huge day for like grabbing movies and stuff. Last year, I didn't grab anything. And mm-hmm. this year, looking at things, it's like I, I can't think of any movies that I need to have on Blu-ray or on 4K everything that I watch is like on streaming or I already have a copy of it somewhere. Do I really need a 4k copy of it? Like, am I ever going to go back and watch that 4k copy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, dude, what, <laughs> uh, it was so convenient to watch taxi driver, um, on streaming rather than get out my physical media blu-ray. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's crazy to me. Cause I would always, you know, I'd, uh, I, I pulled a binder out, get the blu-ray out but I was like, you know what? It's just a click away. I, I, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, it's um, streaming is great and streaming is very convenient. But uh, yeah, I think we're at a new new age here, man. I mean, I listen. Some films I'm absolutely gonna buy on Blu-ray. You know, when there's a sale for John Wick Chapter Four, it's a done deal. I'm, I'm getting it. Uh, but <laughs> you're right. I don't collect it as much as I used to. Yeah, yeah. It. it- I don't know what it is that I think it's mostly the pandemic that it kind of just completely flipped the script on what how I watch things, because Mm -hmm. instead of going to the theaters, I would just watch it on streaming and it was just convenient. And that got me more into, well, what else is on here? You know, what else should I be watching Mm -hmm. on here? And just doing it that way instead of being like, oh, I'm going to pick up that uh, movie when it comes out at, you know, on Tuesday at Best Buy and everything like that. Oh man, yeah, you know. And then, yeah, then Black Fridays, which are still a thing. You know, um, you just uh, would look forward to seeing like what the uh, what the next sale was going to be mm-hmm. uh, with the movie section. Well, I and, mean, uh, with Best Buy getting rid of physical media, this Black Friday at Best Buy is going to be insane. <laughs> I will say that because you can tell that it's going to be a mix of their clearance sale for all their physical media. Mm. you think so it's gonna be a great opportunity for them to get rid of everything that they have right now Mm. because people are already gonna be in stores going oh i gotta grab this deal and if they see oh blu-rays all of them 50 percent off automatically that's gonna get people to start grabbing stuff they're not gonna look at the prices they're just gonna go 50 percent off that's an amazing deal i gotta grab this Mm, okay okay i hear you i hear you i think it would be a marketing mistake not to take advantage of that like ideal that people already have with black friday yeah okay i got you i got you um we'll see we'll see on that i i uh i hear what you're saying uh but i want to let you know i uh as far as movies go i uh just saw today the newest saw film saw 10 How, how is that one 
you know what, dude? This film, I, I like Saw because I like a good torture gore film once in a while. It's 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 low rent. You don't need to think too much. And um, if you're if you can stomach it, because I, I really think the effects are like cartoonish. Um, but this one was actually pretty solid. This one had actually a good storyline behind it. You're not watching it for the kills. You're actually watching it for the storyline. And uh, Tobin Bell, who plays Jigsaw, he actually gives a solid performance in this one. It's it's still Saw, mm-hmm. so it's still kind of self preachy or whatever, you know. But it's it was a solid movie. I give it a solid. Uh, I say three. I'm I'm, I'm between three point five and four. Okay, I, I heard that the story on this one was good, but I also heard people say that the deaths in this one were more laid back than in previous movies. I mean, how many death traps can you set up? Um, That's true. At what point do they start going? I don't know. Just throw nails in their skull. I, I I'm out of ideas, man. Come on. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, there was one scene. There was one trap near the end. Uh, without giving anything away, but symbolically, it it was a it was an emotional scene that played pretty well. Like, uh, yeah, I feel like this revitalizes the franchise. I mean, I don't know how many how many prequel films you can do. I mean, Jigsaw, <laughs> the actual guy, is dead in the movies, but right. this was a, this, this was a good movie. I, I felt like this one kind of played into the theme of you screw people over in life. You know how how well do you cherish your life, and you're gonna you're gonna see through these tests right here. Like this film played back into the original purpose of Saw pretty well. Yeah, your, your decisions have consequences. Is basically Absolutely. always been the theme of Saw. Yeah, yeah, I I liked it, man. I thought it was a solid uh, return to form. Um, anything you've seen? Uh, right now we have Loki going. Been watching okay. that and. Nothing else really right now. It's kind of I'm, I'm waiting for things to actually start popping up for like movies and shows and everything again right now because we're in a like dull season, I think. Yeah, I agree. I would definitely agree. Yeah. Um. All right, folks. Well, it's been a great episode. You know, please watch these movies. Uh, please remember to watch movies in general. If you still got physical media that you want to own, buy it up before it gets sold out. And, uh, yeah, you know, uh, it's been another great episode of DFV. Uh, Take care.